0: It's good to see you today. If you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12 today. John chapter 12 is is where we're going to be, and we're going to start with the pop quiz, if, if that's all right. No points are on the line. If next Sunday is Easter Sunday, that makes today in the Christian calendar... Palm Sunday, and I'm a little upset because when I was a kid, Palm Sunday meant all the kids would run streaming into the auditorium with potentially eye gouging tree branches. Um, And I haven't seen that today, so maybe that's good. My deductible has been met, but I don't want an eye gouging incident. We're gonna have we're gonna talk about Palm Sunday today, and we're gonna read a passage. We've been in John's Gospel, and so we're gonna fast forward a little bit so that we can get to the Palm Sunday account in in John's Gospel. But before we do that, I want to start with something that probably will seem a bit strange. This is a picture of Fenway Park, hopefully. And the year is 2004. It is October of 2004. And I have just moved from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, to Boston, Massachusetts. And the Boston Red Sox are the team that everybody follows, that everybody loves, that everybody laments because for decades they have done nothing but blow it when it comes time for the postseason. And so I arrive in Boston 2004, my first year there, and the Red Sox once again are in the American League Championship Series facing the great Satan, the New York Yankees, (laughs) and Derek Jeda, as it's pronounced. And the Red Sox, of course, once again, are down three games to zero. Nobody has ever come back from three games to zero down. And so this is the entire city of Boston is prepped for yet another example of their Red Sox blowing it. And then and then, Boston wins game four. Boston wins game five. Boston wins game six and there we arrive at game seven of the American League Championship Series and lo and behold, a miracle happens and the Boston Red Sox defeat the New York Yankees. And and as a guy from Oklahoma, like I'm new to this. I I, I kind of took the credit for, hey, I came to town and you guys won the World Series. Um, They did go on to win the World Series And the happiest moment in the history of Boston, people streaming into the streets, cheering, shouting, running around, embracing complete strangers. This is a picture, next slide, outside of Fenway Park as as people are kind of filing out of the stadium. And then the thing that seems to happen almost always when there's a championship of some sort this crowd that is incredibly happy, just elated, just beside themselves with joy, proceeds to destroy the very city that they are celebrating and light various objects on fire. And so this is a scene after Boston wins the World Series where the crowd that had just, just moments, seconds earlier, been filled with joy becomes transformed into the mob, the crowd becomes the mob. And I don't know how many of you have been in a, in a large group environment, maybe at a, at a sporting event, maybe at a concert, a rock concert, maybe at a political rally, where you've been in this like teeming mass of people and you feel something shift, and you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> This kind of makes me nervous. There's actually a phobia of crowds that many people have. It's connected with agoraphobia because in, in certain instances, it's strange when people get together how quickly things can go south. And so I want to talk about this one concept today within the life of Jesus, this one concept, and I'm simply going to call it the crowd, the crowd, and specifically in the context of Palm Sunday, and I think one of the points that, that I would make as we begin here is, more than any time in human history, right now, we have come to stake our identity, our approval, our entertainment, even our income, and, and our leaders on the opinion of the crowd. And there are some aspects of that that are good. We might say, well, hey, democracy is a pretty good thing. That's better than like a dictatorship or a monarchy, Right. But more than any other point in history, we have come to stake our identity, our approval, our entertainment, our income, our leaders on the opinion of the crowd. And the crowd, in some instances, can move very quickly to become the mob. I read this article recently by a lady by the name of Kristen Clark. She says, our collective belief in the wisdom of crowds is everywhere these days. From the democracies that run our cities, our states, our governments, to sites like Kickstarter and Reddit, where we uh, post projects and ideas in the hopes that the, the best will rise to the top. But, she says, but, one look at a riotous mob after a football game, or say the aftermath of Ireland's housing bubble will remind you that collectively, collectively, people can often be deeply unwise. The crowd is what I wanna talk about today. You think about the extent to which today our approval comes from the crowd, maybe in ways that is different somewhat than a few generations or even just a few years ago. The average number of Facebook friends is 338, right? So if you have 337, sorry, um, you can friend me later, but you're below average. The number of those friends that you trust in a crisis is four. Right? the I don't know if you've ever experienced this where you post a picture or a joke. I was working on a joke yesterday because my Kansas State Wildcats lost to what I can tell from all appearances is um, Gryffindor. Um, and like you post a joke or a photo and you're like, you look back later and you're like, four likes, what is this? I, I feel, do you hate me? What is uh, it, our approval comes from, in many cases nowadays, the crowd. I, I have a blog where I post on occasionally, and some posts you know, will have tons of views, thousands of views, and I feel very important and very smart. Another post will have eight views, and I feel very low and very unimportant. Entertainment is increasingly predicated upon the opinion of the crowd. It used to be you had to impress one record executive, and you were set but now you become famous by posting a video on YouTube, and the crowd collectively decides whether or not you're worthy to be a star. American Idol transformed entertainment because it wasn't just you know some guy in, an, in, a, in a big office building, but it was us voting on who the, next, who the next star would be. Our income in certain instances is determined by the crowd, and then certainly our leaders in a, in a democracy. But my question today is simply this. What do we need to understand about the crowd and this crowd mentality in order to live well and to respond rightly to Jesus Christ? What do we need to understand about this entity or this concept, the crowd, in order to live well and to respond rightly to Jesus Christ? And so we're going to turn to John chapter 12. And one of the great passages, the Palm Sunday passage in the Gospel of John, and we meet, fittingly enough, Jesus and and a crowd. It says this, John 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches, and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he said on it as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, His disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, raising Lazarus, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The crowd on Palm Sunday welcomes Jesus as king. And the Pharisees look at this crowd and their interpretation is not just these people, but the whole world has recognized and proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah. They're laying down palm branches on the road so that his donkey doesn't even have to step in a mud puddle. They're proclaiming him to be the king, and the Pharisees say the whole world has gone after him. Uh, A few weeks ago, we sat down at the dinner table, and my wife, probably feeling, I don't know, maybe feeling particularly optimistic, served some raw spinach at the table and some some green spinach leaves and my son i think we have a picture of this ewan picked up the raw spinach and began to wave it about saying shouting hosanna 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 right and i i posted this online i got quite a few likes i felt pretty good about myself one of my friends said, there's McNall brainwashing his kids with Jesus again. And I, I said, what's your point, right? Jesus or Dora the Explorer? You make, your, you make your pick, right? He picked up spinach and was proclaiming Hosanna. And to be honest, I don't know that I've ever talked to him about this story. Maybe it's a, it's a sort of... Uh, pointer to how good a job that Pastor Nick and the people that serve in children's ministry here at Grace Community Church are doing, because even raw spinach reminded a two-year-old of Jesus, right? It, it, that's sort of like a, a testimony maybe to the, to the children's ministry. But Palm Sunday, just like Ewan's little proclamation of Hosanna, is, is the high watermark of Jesus' popularity, It doesn't, if you're taking like a poll, an opinion poll, the people of Jerusalem, it doesn't get any better for Jesus in terms of his popularity than it does at Palm Sunday. People, children, adults are screaming, cheering, proclaiming him to be the king, and in five days he'll be dead. Five days. Like that's a quick turnaround from king of the Jews to crucify him. And the irony, the ultimate painful irony, and the question that comes up, is how is it that this same crowd so quickly becomes that mob that yells crucify him? And in just a few days, in five days, the Romans, the one thing that the Romans, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, and the people at large can agree upon is that it would be a good thing for Jesus to die. The crowd turns quickly. Whether we're talking about outside Fenway Park or in Boston, Massachusetts, whether we're talking about the crowd pounding that happens on social media these days, we build up our heroes and then we tear them down. The crowd turns quickly. And in many ways, the passage is, is, book, is sort of bookended by these two headings. It's a tale of two headings because the heading in my Bible, right above the passage, says, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king, and the heading right below it says, Jesus predicts his death. Like, how did he know? I mean, if if I ride into here today and everyone proclaims me king, and you just lay your coats, your coats down, and you just, you know, you just I'm the greatest person in the world. The next thing out of my mouth is probably not gonna be, in a week you're gonna kill me. Like, I'm thinking in a week, who knows what? I'm going to be king, right? And yet Jesus, Jesus knows the crowd. And so if, if there's a big idea today for this entire message that's a, that's a warning to us and a safeguard to us, it's this, that the crowd is fickle. The crowd is fickle. How many of you have experienced the fickleness of public opinion, the fickleness of the crowd in, in your life. The crowd can be fickle. And so the next question, as we look at this passage and we think about how that plays out for us, I want to ask, how does the fickleness of the crowd, the same principle that's at work in John chapter 12, show itself today? How does the mob display its fickleness Today, and, and I've essentially listed three, three ways uh, that it does that shallow preferences, short memories, selfish motives. Shallow preferences, short memories, and selfish motives. How is it that the crowd, both in, in this passage and, and today, has shallow preferences? Um, one of the ways, one of the things I found when I was researching this, that this past, past uh, in two thousand sixteen during the presidential debates, this was a, a poll that was taken or analytics that was taken during the Republican presidential debate. The number one Googled search during the Republican presidential debates was this is very important, very weighty, very relevant information. Quote: How tall is Jeb Bush? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> you think like, like the American public, what do we really need to know? I need to know how tall he is, right? That's what I really need to know statistics- stru- studies have been done on how we choose our leaders in uh over fifty percent of elections we we choose we choose a taller guy, very simple, right which shows that I will never be elected to anything right unless I you know get some platform shoes or something shallow preferences, and whether that's for like who you sit with in the cafeteria in middle school, whether that is who you choose to to date, whether that's who sometimes gets hired over another person, or whether that's who you choose to lay down your palm branch for and then pick it back up again. The mob is fickle because oftentimes our preferences are kind of shallow, are kind of shallow selfish selfish motives what is well short memories let's go with that one since it's since it's second on the screen um in five days we've said it already jesus goes from being publicly proclaimed as king to being crucified as a brigand and that can't happen unless the crowd the mob has a short memory And for many of us, the attitude that we have with regard to our leaders, with regard to some of our friends, perhaps even with regard to Jesus himself is is similar. It's a sort of what have you done for me lately attitude. What have you done for me lately, Jesus? And what's interesting in this passage, one of the things that's mentioned in the passage is that the reason the crowd is, is following has a lot to do with this guy by the name of Lazarus. And they remember what Jesus did in raising Lazarus. And so this swells his popularity because they know what he's done and they've seen his power. But in just a few days, raising Lazarus won't be enough. And you say, well, how could that be? How could, raising somebody from the dead ought to be enough, right? To gain some attention, some popularity, some loyalty. But it's it's not enough because we collectively as human beings have a short memory in certain instances. You've experienced it to your own detriment and you've probably seen it within, within yourself. Thirdly, how the crowd displays its fickleness, selfish, selfish motives. I've, I've not become independently wealthy yet, But I have talked to some folks who have just changed tax brackets in a dramatic fashion. Um, And what they've said, and what I've seen on television as well, to sort of corroborate this, is that one of the things that's happened is that in some cases their family members and their friends begin to look at them the same way that my dog looks at me when I'm holding the treat bucket. (laughs) Like, you know and that there's this sense in which well, wait a minute you don't love me for me you you love me because you want something from me you want to you want to get something from me and the and the question that that sort of rings out over this passage in in one sense the statement of hosanna is the greatest thing you can say to jesus it's like the most orthodox jesus save me it's like what the tax collector says when he's praying in the temple like god save me i'm a sinner hosanna right and yet in one sense if the emphasis is on the me rather than the god who is saving me we could ask the question is it possible for even hosanna to be blasphemous I mean, if the focus is all on me, could even the word Hosanna be a kind of blasphemy? One person asked the question, if Jesus wasn't in heaven, would you still want to go? That's a hard question. I'm like, well, yeah, it's heaven, man. Come on. Of course I'd still want to go. Same reason I want to go to Cancun, right? Same thing. If Jesus, well, of course, well but in one sense the Christian life more than just a get out of hell free card, more than a promise of wealth or health or prosperity is a relationship with Jesus. The ultimate treasure, the ultimate reward is not money or stuff. The ultimate reward is Jesus. It's God. And you get the sense that some of the folks who are saying Hosanna here, it's a very me-focused word, even though it's a beautiful and right proclamation. There's a selfish motive. Dave Ramsey has a famous uh, quote. You've probably heard it. He says, how many people spend money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't like? and i've done it you've done it right there is this sense that i want to impress people even if i don't like them and that will drive me to do strange things and so maybe the key takeaway from this first movement within the passage or the message is this don't entrust yourself to the crowd don't entrust yourself to the whims and the opinions and the fluctuations of the crowd. In this this same gospel, John chapter 2, a passage we read just a few weeks ago, it says this in John chapter 2. It says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that Jesus was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. And it says as he go on, he knew what was in them. And so he wouldn't entrust himself to them. Jesus knows the crowd, and so he doesn't stake his identity, his approval on the crowd's opinion. But that's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to live out in our own lives. Don't entrust yourself. Maybe the question for you is, how have I been doing that in my own life? How have I entrusted myself to the opinion of the crowd, whether it's in the use of social media, whether it's in the attention we pay um, to, to gossip, or the way we get really, really high when people praise us, or really, really low when people criticize us. Uh, my, my dad used to say, y- y- you're never as good <laughs> as you think you are when people praise you. And you're almost never as bad as you feel when people Criticize you. Don't entrust yourself to the crowd in that way. Number two, the first question was, how does the crowd display its fickleness? The second question is, what triggers our fickleness with respect to Jesus? What triggers fickleness in our own lives with respect to Jesus? And as, as we look at Palm Sunday, the two words that, that stand out to me for like, what is it that turns this crowd on a dime. The two words are fear and power. Fear and power. And in many cases, if you look at like, what are bad decisions that we make as human beings and what are they driven by? In a lot of instances, they're driven by fear and power, a desire for power or, or manipulative power. When we look at world history When we look across church history, when we look into the the first century, in, in many cases, the world is ruled by bullies with bullhorns who use fear and power to turn the crowd. And in the gospel, that's exactly what's happening here. The same crowd that had just proclaimed Jesus as king, the religious leaders use fear, they use intimidation, they use money, most likely, to to turn this crowd so that just a while later they're saying, give us Barabbas, give us that guy. Um, One of the great sort of ironies in the account is that Jesus is famous for being one who called God Abba. Jesus in Aramaic would have been called Bar Abbas, the son of Abba. And yet, when the crowd is turned by fear and power, they end up crying out for another Barabbas, another the other son of Abba, the one that we want instead of the one that God has given us. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to stand up to fear and power. If you're going to follow this, Messiah. And the problem is it's difficult. It's really easy to say, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to say no to fear, or we're going to speak truth to power. But in actual real-life circumstances, it's not, it's not easy. I had an acquaintance who, who told me recently that I got a new boss, and he had just filled out performance reviews my acquaintance had on people who were sort of um, beneath him on the on the totem pole, and he had given this one person a fantastic performance review because they had been doing a fantastic job. And his new boss called him and said, um, you're going to have to change that review for uh, employee X. And he said, w- w- well, why? He's like, well, if, if you give him a good review, we're going to have to give him a raise. And that leaves less, you know, for, for us and for you and for me. And so we need you to, like, you know, flag him on some stuff right? What do you say? That's that's your boss. (laughs) And they're using fear and power against you. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means saying no to fear and power. That's what turns and triggers, triggers, not triggers, fickleness with respect to Jesus. Something else that triggers it, I would say it's a christ that doesn't match our expectations that's what turns the crowd from palm sunday to good friday is a jesus a christ who doesn't match our expectations of what a messiah what a savior ought to look like jesus continually says says no to that many of his Many of his contemporaries and many of us today would very much like there to be a crown without a cross. We want the good news without the dark times. They very much want new life, we do, without having to die to ourselves. We want a Messiah who, who just validates our preconceived opinions, our, our presuppositions, sometimes our prejudices. We want someone to validate the opinions that we already have rather than to confront us in our our sin. And Jesus consistently says this. He consistently says no. And he refuses to crowdsource his mission. Jesus refuses. He says, I love you too much to crowdsource my mission and my messiahship. And he refuses to be the Savior that we want so that he can be the Messiah that we need. And that is the best news imaginable, and it is also profoundly frustrating. It's the greatest thing in the world, but it can grate against us that he refuses to just be the kind of Savior that that we want him to be. Maybe the question in this part for you is this. Do I trust him when he doesn't do the things that I expect? When he doesn't say the things that I want him to say? Do I trust him when he refuses to crowdsource his messiahship to me? Do I still trust him? And for many of the people in the crowd, they love Jesus on Palm Sunday, but they don't trust him when he begins to take his messiahship in a direction that's different than the one that they they wanted. They didn't want a suffering messiah. They wanted a conquering king. And the question is, do I trust Jesus in, in those instances? Last point, last question, number three. How does Jesus respond to the crowd? how does he respond? We've already said he does not entrust himself to them, right? But how does he respond more specifically? And I think one of the things you could say is that Jesus loves the crowd. He even loves the mob, but he will not follow it. He he loves the crowd, He loves this teeming mass of humanity and all of its beauty and all of its faults, all of its violence, all of its loves and all of its hates. He loves the crowd, but he refuses to simply follow it. And and there are lies that we buy into in some ways when we think about what it looks like to love our neighbor or what it looks like to love the crowd. One of the lies is that in order to love the crowd, you must affirm it. That's a lie. It's a lie. That in order to love people, you have to affirm everything that they do or every choice that they make. And Jesus loves the crowd, but he will not affirm everything they think or do or say. Another lie is that in order to love the crowd, you must chase after it. Chase after it. It's affections, it's approval, Right. it's Its. Love in so many ways. And that's a lie as well. Jesus refuses to sort of just chase the publicity and the poll numbers because he loves us too much to simply affirm us in our sin and our brokenness. So what's the truth? I would say one of the truths that we need to see in this passage in Palm Sunday is this. That in order to begin to love the crowd yourself, you must recognize your own face within it. In order to begin to love even the mob, you must begin to recognize your own face within it. And in some ways, this passage, the way I've been delving into it, I've been asking you to picture yourself upon the donkey. Because it's like, have you been, you know... Raised to great heights by the crowd? Yes. Have you been taken low by the crowd? Yes. Don't entrust yourself to the crowd. That's picturing yourself on the donkey, right? Trying to be like Jesus in response to the crowd. But the best way to picture ourselves on Palm Sunday is not on the donkey. It's as a part of the mob. It's as a part of that teeming mass of humanity that in one instance is saying Hosanna and the next instance is saying Crucify him. Don't just picture yourself on the donkey. Because you're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. We're somewhere in the crowd. And in order to love the crowd, the mob, whether that's a relative, whether that's a co-worker, whether that's um, somebody in your family, we have to recognize our own face within that mob, within that crowd in all of its fickleness and all of its imperfections. I had an instance a couple weeks ago, I was driving to work and I was doing what I'm often doing when I'm driving to work. I'm listening to a podcast on the one hand, I'm thinking about what's next on the agenda, what class is up next or what thing I need to do when I get to work. Something rattled around the back of my head with the kids or something like that. I'm also trying to drive, which can be precarious. And I'm at the corner of Adams and Walmart. I don't know the street name, but Walmart's a good landmark. Right by the RBC and the Arvest Bank there. And it's a busy intersection. I've got the podcast and all this stuff going on. And cars are just all around me, all around me. And I look in front of me and I see a minivan, kind of an older minivan. Didn't think anything of it. And then as it turns the corner to go down Adams just right by me, I realize, like, that's my mom and dad in the minivan. And they had gotten a, new, a different vehicle, and so I hadn't recognized it right away. And I had this, like, weird, weird sort of moment of sort of serendipity, or, like, you know, it's like, wait a minute, that's, oh. And I had this thought, like, that's not a stranger, that's my parents. And then the very next thought, maybe because we have young kids, it was a very strange thought, was, those people changed my diapers. <laughs> Maybe I just changed a diaper. I don't know what I was doing. It was like, I had this weird moment. Like, well, yeah, okay, not a stranger. That's my parents, yes. And then it was like, well, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for those people in the minivan, right? And like, I kind of thought about like all the things that they had done for me over the years because just two seconds earlier it was just a complete stranger and then it was my parents, right? And it was if, it was as if I recognized like my own face within the crowd of people that were sort of driving around me and, and the value and the gratitude and the worth of, of those people that had just moments later just been complete strangers that I wouldn't have given a second thought to, right? And there's a sense in which to follow Jesus is to recognize your own face within the crowd and in that very same moment to be filled with love and gratitude and compassion for that same teeming mob that maybe just a few seconds ago you wouldn't have given a second thought to. Because God so loved the crowd, the, the mob, the, the world, the word world, the kosmon when it's used in John's gospel is always a reference to creation in rebellion. And God loves us in spite of that. That's the gospel, that we don't entrust ourselves to the crowd, but we're called to love that same mob, that same crowd as we see our face within it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this week. We thank you for the way that time slows down as we approach Golgotha, both in the Gospels and in the order of our worship. And so we thank you for the chance to celebrate Palm Sunday today, to celebrate Good Friday this week, and then to celebrate the greatest event in all of human history one week from today on Easter Sunday so, Lord, we, we pause and we enter into the story. We think about this, this terrible reality that the same people that proclaim you king also call for your death. And we recognize in that fickleness an aspect of our own humanity, of our own hearts. So, Lord, we, we pray that we could be like you that we wouldn't entrust ourselves to the opinions and the whims and the fluctuations of public opinion of the crowd, that we would find identity only in you. Lord, we pray also that we would recognize our own face within this teeming mob, that it was our sin that contributed to your death. And yet you loved us unconditionally in our state of rebellion. So Lord, we thank you that you so love the world, that you would give your life for us. We pray for the ability to love the other, the crowd, the mob, because because you have first loved us. We thank you for this week and all of the meaning that is contained within it, within this holy week before Easter. We pray that you would help us as we walk through it to be faithful and to be joyful in the midst of it. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.